0: You're listening to This Nazarene Life Stories of Young Nazarene Clergy and Their Role Models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network devoted to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors. Anyone can join the network for free over at youngclergy.net for access to free resources, including the recordings from the 2017 Young Clergy Conference this past March. Today on the podcast, we have Father Richard Rohr from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Father Rohr was our special guest at this year's Young Clergy Con, and Pastor Jason Smith sat down to ask him a few questions between sessions. Welcome back to the
1: podcast. My name is Jason Smith, and I'll be your guest host today. And today on the podcast, we have Father Richard Rohr, a Franciscan in the contemplative tradition. And looking forward to having him speak with us today. This podcast has been for young Nazarene clergy and our role models. And as I've read you over these last months, I have sensed a Wesleyan spirit in you and uh, really been drawn to so much of what you have to say. And we have to write. And so looking forward Mm. to having you today on the podcast. Welcome. I'm honored to be here. Sincerely. You are at the center of action and contemplation. Um, So much of your writing, you talk about the word and being the most important. Yes. yes. Can you talk a little bit about what you do Mm. at that center? And then maybe lean into that contemplative word for us today.
0: Okay. Um, We're uh, 30 years old, going on 31 now. And I came to New Mexico 31 years ago to establish a place that we could teach people who are working for social change, for the disadvantaged, to give them a spirituality, frankly, so they wouldn't burn out, Mm. so they could find their own depth and operate from depth and not just from anger or a career or a liberal justice cause, but because this was really Christ working in them and through them and as them. So for many years, we had an internship program where people would come and live with us for weeks or months. We'd give more intensive training, both in liberation theology and contemplative prayer. Now we have a living school, which allows us to teach many more. Each year, we accept about 200. We turn away. Last year, was 400 to 600 each year. Wow. Isn't that just that that many people are interested in going deep is just still astounding to me. Because we don't treat them like infants. We give them, you know, PhD work in spirituality, if you want to call it that. Um, And there's so many people ready for it. It's very ecumenical. Of course, I'm probably more known in the Catholic world, but increasingly um, the people who come are from all the whole spectrum of protestant denominations and even jewish people and buddhists we've had a few of so there certainly is a longing for depth and a recognizing that christianity had a mystical contemplative tradition see a lot of people think to be contemplative they got to become buddhist (laughs) and that's just not true we had it but we didn't teach it yeah So uh, that's what we're still doing. We, we do a lot of media stuff. I teach conferences a lot. We're going to have a big conference on the Trinity in two weeks. 2,000 people coming to that. It's embarrassing but wonderful yeah. that people care that much to come to this out-of-the-way place in New
1: Mexico because they, uh, they want to grow spiritually. Yeah, The contemplative heart. Is something that you read about a lot. I mean, I'm looking at a book right yeah. now called "The Naked Now: um, How to See, Learning to See as Mystic See." Um, you've done such a wonderful job of having people grow that depth. How would you describe the contemplative mind?
0: I was just dive into it, and I have to trust the first thing that comes to my mind is what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> but um, it's seeing things in their wholeness, not in their parts. It's seeing things with a compassionate, loving eye instead of a critical, analytical eye. Now, you've got to know, as a culture, we're trained in the opposite. And it's sort of a means of self-protection. Critique everything, keep it under control. So you have to learn it now, how to not do that, how to let the moment be what it is, as it is, without giving it a label. You know, we've, we know that Jesus said in several places directly, do not judge, Matthew 7.1. Uh, Buddha says the same thing. I think the best word that would con- communicate the same meaning that uh, we need today is do not label. Because it is finally important that you make important judgments about reality or you're in trouble. But you can't start with judging or labeling. Because that's categorizing and you eliminate everything that threatens you, everything that is beyond your experience, everything that's bigger than you. So once you start doing that, you see the course you're on, you're going to eliminate God. Because God is always bigger than you. Always, yeah. by definition. So you've got to teach people, it's it's bringing your head down into your heart. So you can know in a loving way. Don't hear heart a sentimentality. It's simply the refusal to to be negative. It's the refusal to push against. The way I usually teach it is you have to learn to start with yes. Mm. And to learn how to start every encounter with yes, a foundational yes, that takes work. Because the, the nature of the human ego is we start with No. I don't like his looks. I don't like, I don't think he's Nazarene. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
1: sure.
0: I mean, you've just cut off your possibility of sincerely loving that man because you don't like his looks or because he's not Nazarene or Catholic or whatever it might be. But we all do that. It's stupid that we think that way because it's keeping us from becoming loving people. So the contemplative mind is in the end and the beginning a loving mind. Uh, I talk about it at the end of The Naked Now, where it's it it has a lot to do with a compassionate presence. Well, it has everything to do with presence. It's not thinking your way through the encounter. It's being present to what the encounter is inviting you into, if you can feel the difference. Uh, yeah. Presence doesn't come naturally to us. It, we, we see relationships as pragmatic, functional, you know, uh, institutionalized roles. And we can go through our whole life in in this kind of culture without ever being really present to anybody. So if you don't know how to be present to anybody, how could you possibly walk in a church and know how to be present to God? (laughs) It's absurd, you know. How you do anything is how you do everything. And that's what contemplation teaches you that how am I doing this moment right now? Yeah. And if I'm sitting here resenting you because you're taking my time, that's going to come through. It's, it, it's going to limit our capacity for deep communication and deep understanding.
1: Yeah. Hmm. How would you suggest a young pastor, young Nazarene pastor, this is mainly the audience that will be listening to this, but I'm sure many people will listen to this, but if there's a young clergy person how would they begin to practice presence, practice contemplation?
0: Let me say, first of all, to get people a little off the hook so they don't punish themselves too much. I admit that it's difficult in the first half of life. And what I mean by the first half of life is that period where you're still getting your education, meeting a goal that's keeping you always little worried about the future, even a young father paying bills and keeping his kids healthy and safe. That all is necessary, and God uses it, and God understands it. But it frankly makes the contemplative mind very difficult. You're too goal-oriented. Yeah, all the time you're you're getting your degrees. You're working toward passing tests and reading books and so forth. So it doesn't come easily in the first half of life. The only people it comes easily to are normally people who suffer some debilitating illness or crisis where they have no choice but to go deeper because they're going to go crazy otherwise, you know? Mm-hmm. But most of the rest of us, it's frankly only when we get, and I'm gonna call the second half of life sort of after 40. are yeah. okay, I've got my education, I got my title or whatever. I think I need. I've built my container of my identity. That's what I talk about in Falling Upward. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now what's it all about? And uh, Bill Plotkin calls the first half of life your survival dance. And the second half your sacred dance. So when you start doing your sacred dance, you find what's this container of being a priest or a minister or whatever I am, what's it all about? What am I all about? That's your sacred dance. Then you start longing for a different mind, a contemplative mind. because It's like you're not old enough to remember the Cinemascope movies where the curtain would go out that was before your time (laughs) (laughs) but you'd you go in the theater and it would say cinemascope and the curtains would go way back the screen would be real long and i often feel like when i when i drop into my contemplative mind if that's what it feels like the curtain's moving back Mm. and i don't understand things in their parts but in their wholeness let me just give you what might seem like a foolish example I could look at a tree, and because I'm educated, I know that's an elm tree, you know. Uh, So I think I'm smart, and I know what an elm leaf looks like, and I realize I could even cut this elm tree down and make some money out of the wood. That's to see it with the first mind. Functional, pragmatic, gives shade, doesn't give shade, drops too many leaves. Now, when you can stare at it long enough in a loving way, The curtains part, and you're able to see this. Maybe it only lasts for an instance, but that's all you need. As one instance of the eternal self-emptying of God into creation. Mm -hmm. That somehow God chose this tree to exist. Merely to give glory to God. And I might be the only human being who will ever enjoy it and use it to draw me to God. That's seeing the tree in its wholeness, its eternal purpose, its infinite meaning. So you can't see things in their infinity and, and eternal, eternity until you see them contemplatively, yeah. you see. Yeah. And it always includes love. You, you find yourself respecting it. Suddenly that tree, even if it has some dead branches, is now, because it's an epiphany, it's a manifestation of something. It becomes beautiful to you. And even the broken parts become beautiful to you.
1: I think another reason that I've been drawn to you and many people have been drawn to you is the, some of the ways in which so much of your writing is about the transformation of all of life and then all of creation. Mm-hmm. There just seems to be a, a wholeness to you. Well, I don't know, to me, but I hope I'm talking that way. Thank <laughs> you, thank you. But Can you speak a little bit about that transformation of life? Um, as yeah. the Church of the Nazarene, we talk a lot about um, Christ likeness. Uh, the, the term we use is sanctification. That's um, I love that we, language. How can we look like mm-hmm. Jesus Christ? I just love to talk about the transformation of life and. and man.
0: Well, the literal Latin word means to change forms, to cross forms, transformare. So the normal form I start with is I'm a little white catholic boy growing up in kansas and i those are identifiers white catholic boy okay so what else can you do you got to start i over identifying with those things you don't realize you're over identifying now in that small self ego self little by little is taken from you that you realize you know my identity is white, American, Catholic, male. Those were just starters. And I'm glad God gave them to me. But I'm more than that because I've met people who aren't American, who aren't Catholic, who aren't male, who are just beautiful. (laughs) So I'm not so trapped inside of my little self anymore. Paul has a most succinct line. I live no longer, not I. Galatians but Christ lives in me, I live in Christ. Mm -hmm. That's the best summary statement. I call it an identity transplant, Mm. where you move from being the mere Richard self, which you've protected and defended and built up for so many years, and that self starts little by little falling away. So your word Christlike is beautiful, where I, I really don't want to advertise Richard anymore. I don't, who cares? <laughs> At my, I'm in I'm my 75th year. You know, it's just I don't need to push myself or force people to like me. It's wonderful when people are as kind as you are. Uh, but I can't make my identity depend on what other people think of me because I know, having lived this many years, many of the people who put me on the highest pedestal, when they saw my very human faults, I crashed all the farther. It's no, it's no gift to be idealized. It really isn't. And other people who hate me and think I'm a heretic or a sinner, I'm sure I am a sinner. They hate me for the wrong reasons. <laughs> the ones who love me, love me for the wrong reasons. <laughs> Neither of them are true. But it takes your whole life to start seeing that pattern. That this, the small self is just a doorway, a gateway to the God self. Mm-hmm. When you, when you stop protecting, the most succinct line there is John 12:24, where he says, unless the single grain of wheat die, it remains just a grain of wheat. It remains a little tiny self disconnected to God and the universe. But if it dies, if you can let go of that shell around Richard, stop protecting Richard's identity, persona, book sales, <laughs> yep. I mean, stop it, it doesn't mean anything uh, then you're free you finally know who you are and who you are, to quote Colossians another one of my favorite phrases hidden with Christ in God I love that Me too. hidden with Christ in God but that's a, a transformational journey there might be one or two big moments but it more or less sinks in as you stop taking yourself too seriously. Both how wonderful you are and how terrible you are. Both of them are ego trips. And I don't think most religious people were told that the second one is an ego trip. To walk around always saying how terrible you are. Mm. Well, whoever told you you were supposed to be perfect? Mm. And I'm a perfectionist by nature, so I've had to fight that all my life. But people who think they're so terrible... I hate to admit it, but they tend to be self-preoccupied people. Yeah. It's reverse narcissism, oh, but wow. it's still narcissism. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I learned this as a confessor. As you know, in the Catholic Church, we hear confessions. And some of the same people would come back again and again lamenting how terrible they are. You know, And I, I wouldn't say this directly, but sometimes I'd think, well, Get over it. Of course, (laughs) of course, you're you're not that perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That you're shocked. That you're shocked because you're not so perfect. After a while, becomes insulting. Really, it's you're digging a hole that's keeping you inside of your small self by taking your temperature every hour Mm -hmm. and finding yourself wanting. So this is where our preoccupation with sin and guilt and shaming people backfired we in fact found out we drew into all of our churches a certain percentage i'm sure it's not as much in the nazarene as it is in the catholic but a certain percentage of people who are who are very self-centered very more so than than some people i meet in the so-called pagan world because they're obsessed with themselves and how perfect they are Mm -hmm. do you see Mm -hmm. and they really haven't fallen in love with christ at all yeah They've just Paul talks about this in Philippians, you know, how uh, the self uh, that was trying to be so perfect had to fall apart and and he was the best Pharisee in town, you know. Yeah. Maybe we, a lot of us go through that. I'm answering more than you
1: need. Anyway, <laughs> no, I, I, I have, one of the things uh, Nazarene's in the Wesleyan tradition. so yes, yes. John Wesley would have been one of the, the patron saints of us or as sort of this grandfather of our faith yeah. theologically. Um, So that Wesleyan heart, that Wesleyan spirit that would allow our transformation to take place through the habits and practices of faith, the Methodism that arises out of of Wesley's heart, um, we would be in that same tradition. Good for you. And so when you say there may be one or two moments, but mostly it kind of sinks in. Sinks in. I think Nazarenes would find um, many of us in virtue ethics. Um, Mm. As you practice, as you habit yourself under certain habits and practices, God is changing you from likeness to likeness that we may be that's in his good. very image. Yes. And so I think it's another reason we're drawn to you. Uh, many people listening to this podcast will say, I want to know what he has to say that would be interpreted amongst us, this Wesleyan little tribe that is saying, mm-hmm. like you say throughout your works, you practice this.
0: Yeah. I've even used uh, that name that I think John Wesley in calling you Methodists well it's what we're trying to say when we speak of practices you know that you've got to retrain the neural grooves in your brain it becomes that literal yes. it doesn't sound very pious does it <laughs> but unless you practice and rewire your psyche it never becomes you it's just theory mm. And I think that's why a lot of us have not been able in, in Christian history to rise to the occasion of loving our enemies. We wanted to, but without practicing. You, in the moment when the big enemy approaches you, you're just not prepared. Yes. So you've got to practice with little people who will offend you and turn you off along the way. Yes. So, uh, And that's one of the things I also have admired in Wesley. He was, I think he was a spiritual giant. The heart strangely warmed. Is often quoted in Catholic circles as an example of a Protestant mystic. Really oh, oh, interesting. Yes. Oh yeah, we yeah. know
1: that. Sure, sure. Well, that's that's a line that would be oft said uh, oh, <laughs> in oh, my circles. It, oh it? yes, oh, oh, my goodness. Well, it should be. My heart was strangely warmed is yeah, something that uh-huh. we would say, um, very heartfelt, but also just in everyday conversation. Yeah. That's just yes, well, yes, as yes, we yes. say that we love Wesley. We love that. We love that. <laughs> well, you, should. Right? you should. You <laughs> should. Well, one of the things that you've mentioned. Uh, in your work a lot and you've said this with Wesley he's on the edge of the inside uh yes. one of the things as Franciscans that you've done is that you've allowed yourself to kind of be on the edge of the Catholic Church kind of pressing the Catholic Church forward and and you you get you get both praise and and, and mm-hmm. feedback and and criticism um and that Franciscan heart of yours is something that I think many Nazarenes would say um just adore uh Church of the Nazarene was founded in the early, late 1800s. Late 1800s. Um, so the Church of the Nazarene was founded in the late 1800s in sort of the Skid Row area of L.A. And wow. so our founder, Phineas F. Brzee, had a heart for the poor. And oh, so beautiful. if I were to bring you some quotes from Brzee, you'd be astounded. You may say, oh, he is a... He he's is a, a Franciscan. Yes, he's a Franciscan <laughs> at heart. And, and the Church of the Nazarene, I think that um, in so many ways... Uh, continues to have that heartbeat and sometimes we've lost that heartbeat yeah how have Franciscans continued to always practice care for the marginalized in society well we got to be honest we haven't always
0: every group has to be converted every generation wow you have to reappropriate the charism the gift yeah or you lose it um, and we became establishment priests in many countries where you know we said we were, uh, Franciscan priests, but, but we're more priests than Franciscans sometimes. Okay. you know. But, but the heart of it always would break through in a good segment in some countries more than others. I think the key with Francis, he was early a, a, on not serving the poor, but living close to them, identifying mm-hmm. with them, yes. solidarity with them. That wasn't thought much in the 13th century. It was all, oh, we from our heroic position in the monastery take food to the poor that would have been Christian charity model up to then but he changed the whole thing to well we're back to presence again that we, we needed to live close to the marginalized and there's a number of definitions of that handicapped people people who are for any reason just uh, you know uh, criticized or pushed to the edge we need to be close to them, not to help them, but to let them change us. <laughs> and we call yes. that reverse mission. That look at that lady, she's so happy with so little. And why do I think I need so much to be happy? Uh, my theology has just been undone. I remember meeting that in El Salvador in the Philippines and Africa, meeting people with so little who were so happy and I'd go back and have to reevaluate every aspect of my life. So, I think that's always been the key that we were supposed to not minister to the poor as much as with and close to the poor. Uh now maybe we would try to help them, but the recognition was they were helping us. Yes. The the turning around, you know.
1: I'm not going to have time to pull up the quote, but often used in many circles in the Church of the Nazarene is that Wesley would say amongst his practices was spending time daily with the poor. Did um, he really? I can't find that for you, and hopefully listeners wow. might be able to quote that for us. Thank but you for telling me that. There was something so. about when, when Wesley was talking about his habits and practices, the duty of constant communion, um, the ability for us to be able to gather together. Um, wow. But one of his practices beyond... Um, Scripture reading and prayer and works of mercy and acts of mercy was just this, this heartbeat to be with the poor. And meaningful. so another reason I think as we've been together these last few days that I think so many Nazarenes have seen a heartbeat in you because they've seen a heartbeat in, in, in Francis um, that is very in, in, mm-hmm. in kindred spirits, I would say. Mm-hmm. Another thing about some of the things that's been so meaningful for you is just sort of this renewal of all of creation. Yes. Uh, and Wesley's has a heartbeat to be able to have the transformation of all of creation. And you, as a Franciscan, love all of creation. And there's such a sense of creation care in your yeah, heart. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your eschatology when it comes to creation and, and, and your love and, and heart for creation care?
0: We have to have an hour at least. No,
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, a big question. That's a big question.
0: See, we operate out of the scarcity model of making God's love only apparent in human beings. And once we were in that scarcity model, then uh, there wasn't even enough love to go around for all human beings. Do you see? Yes. (laughs) The medieval Franciscans uh, taught what they called the great chain of being. And they said if the great chain ever fell apart, uh, we wouldn't be able to see God anywhere. The first was the earth, the firmament, Then the second link, there were seven links. The second was the waters upon the earth. The third was the plants and the trees and the animals and the fruits that grow from the earth. Then the animals, then the humans, then the angelic choirs, and then the divine. That was the great chain of being. And they were all united in being the one in whom we live and move and have our being. It was one created, sanctified universe. Building on Genesis one, it was good. 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 You know, now Bonaventure was our early philosopher, theologian, mystic, who took Francis's intuitive, <clears throat> excuse me, love of brother, son, sister, moon, and all the creatures, and he made a systematic theology out of it that stood the test of time. There's people who say Bonaventure is the most totally complete. Catholic mystic there is because he, he develops it philosophically and he would say Now this is going to sound like what you probably would call universalism. Uh, do you use that term? In? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's usually got a negative connotation doesn't it? Yes, it does. See it does Bad it, it yeah. doesn't for us Yeah, because the word Catholic meant universal, right, you know uh, But the first thousand years was much more open to God was saving history Yes, God was saving the planet. God was saving. Yes, Uh, you know. Look at the. This is not. If you need some scriptures, look at all the covenants. They might be formed through David or through Noah or through Adam and Eve, but they're always with the whole, with Israel, with the people. That's very clear. Yes, very clear. God is saving, making His covenant with history. You know, and that we individualize the gospel. Maybe that'd be worth talking about to the whole group tonight, you know. Uh, It was one of the greatest destructions of the power of the gospel for transformation. So back to Bonaventure. Bonaventure, who has books and books, you know, of his complete philosophical worldview, he would say, he says this toward the end of his life, my entire philosophy is summed up in three words. Emanation, everything emanates from God, everything, Mm -hmm. Corinthians, where in the end, Paul says, God will be all in all. Um, Exemplarism, every single created thing uh, is shouting God and exemplifying God. Every ant, every anthill, every termite, every bird, it's all one ecology, one uh, manifestation of the infinite love of God. And the third word is consummation. So you see why I say it sounds to you probably like universalism, and it probably is. We always felt it isn't our business to decide who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. That just gets you into judgmentalism, exclusionary thinking. That's God's issue. But we know what God's plan is, is emanation, exemplarism, consummation. Uh, Symbolized in the life of Jesus, who's conceived Quietly and visibly in the womb of Mary. Lives an ordinary human life where I don't think his human mind knew he was literally the son of God. I think he only knows that after the resurrection. He has to grow in wisdom, age, and faith, just like we do. Uh, Goes through the humiliations, betrayals, crucifixion, trials. Buried and not just resurrected, but even Martin Luther said this, he said we don't make enough of the ascension Mm -hmm. the ascension completes the circle if we're going to see Jesus as a map of the human journey which is the way I understand the Christ then uh, it it only comes full circle symbolically, all religious language is symbolic, but the hidden conception you and I are born not knowing we're sons of God either, you know Mm -hmm. We only slowly come to that, just like Jesus. We have to go through our rejections, betrayals, trials. It's part of the deal. But the promise that gives history hope is that the final chapter is resurrection. Mm -hmm. So now we didn't, I don't know what you emphasize in Revelation. We never liked the book of Revelation too much (laughs) because it was so militaristic and so seemingly violent. Tell chapters twenty one. You get right at the end. It's beautiful again. Right, right. You know, but uh, I, uh, I, I'm sure you can redeem it somehow. <laughs> but f- for me, for me, if I could eliminate one book, it would because people who are violent and militaristic are always attracted. Not Wesleyans, but I've met so many angry Christians over the year. That's the only book. They can quote his revelation. Yeah. So we've sort of avoided it. Yeah. <laughs> it's still in the Bible, though. It still has something to say.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is wonderful. Um, That's because you're wonderful. <laughs> wonderful people hear things in wonderful ways. Well, I, <laughs> one of the, my favorite scriptures in, in all of the gift that we've been given, given with scripture is that in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself. All things. And in so many ways. Um, and
0: Colossians, All things. Are reconciled in him all <laughs> I, I, I in my new book i'm pointing out how often paul used uses the word all it's more than people realize much more you know yeah. he does have a cosmic notion of salvation yeah. that doesn't mean he's not working for the moral improvement of his little communities as we know but he still believes that god is going to win see that's what it means to be god is you win you don't God doesn't fail. God's love is going to be triumphant. I don't know exactly how. That's not my
1: problem. Well, let's lean into that God is love. Um, mm-hmm. If we want to say anything we are as Nazarenes or Wesleyans, we want to first start with God is love. Mm-hmm. And, and I've mentioned to you we've got this little 16 articles of faith, and yes. our first one is the triune God. But probably the most seminal work in the Church of the Nazarene um, that we would say, most people maybe listening to this podcast would say, it's a little book by a female theologian of ours named Mildred Bangs Wynku. And her book is called A Theology of Love. Oh. Beautiful little book. I'll give one to oh. you before you leave. Oh, I'd I, I've like got to a few see in my it. office. would like to see it. Um, I guess the question I want to ask you, maybe for young clergy who are here, um, young clergy who would be listening to this, um, how much does God love us? You've talked about in many of your books the yeah. kind of sort of, breaking down this sort of system of meritocracy that we yeah. just get roped up in. Could could you speak for a few moments for people listening <laughs> how much does God love us? See, God doesn't love
0: God's love is not determined by the worthiness of the object. God's love is determined by the generosity of the subject. God doesn't love, God is love, right? That's very different. And that's why trinitarian theology is so important because the trinity properly understood Creates a metaphysical template, a metaphysical pattern for infinite love. And it's not the Valentine's Day sentimental notion of love. About, oh, I'm getting so fulfilled in this. It's balancing self-emptying without pouring. Self-emptying without pouring. I mean, if we would have just as Christians taught that to Western civilization. How different Western civilization could be. Mm Because most Christians, forgive me, still have a pagan definition of love.
1: Yeah, talk about that for us. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, it's still hoping the people are going to treat me nice, admire me, give me gifts. Uh, That's one side of the the equation. But unless you make room for it, unless there's some self-emptying on your part, when the gift comes, you don't even know how to enjoy it you don't know how to receive it i mean don't we see this visualized on christmas when all the gifts are piled up and you don't even have time to taste them or enjoy them you're tearing open another package and another package and it. when it's all about giving the most common reason i hear people leave the catholic church and i can understand it but nevertheless the reason is the church isn't feeding me anymore i don't know if your church is we hear it. that language too yes yeah the church isn't feeding me anymore and uh, I can only say it to people I have a good pre-existing relationship with. But I say, did you ever try to feed the church yourself? And honestly, hardly ever. They—they mm. they, Remember, the water wheel of love is our, our metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Three buckets pouring out, swinging back, waiting to be infilled. And knowing they always will be. Infinite, infinite. It's an infinite template for nonstop love. So God doesn't love us because we're good. God loves us because God is good. That's just one of my favorite
1: lines you've ever said. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again.
0: <laughs> God doesn't love us because we're that good. God loves us because God is that good. Uh, they used to have a bumper sticker <laughs> when I was in Cincinnati where they said that. But it's just true. But I'm so glad your church is Trinitarian. Because without it, you have no metaphysical DNA at the heart of the universe that, that describes love. You know? It's just sentimentality. Yes. Well, you know, I hope God loves me. But the, the God most Christians believe in is highly preferential, highly exclusionary, and to be perfectly honest, highly punitive. hmm You don't fall in love with someone like that. You're not gonna give your heart, your heart, to someone who punishes you for all eternity if you don't like him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't like a human being who is that way. Why would I like a God who's that way? So um, our whole eschatology was never the three-leveled universe, uh, heaven, hell, purgatory, which we Catholics added. But I do not understand why purgatory emerged, and let me be with that for a minute. Hmm. It was a poorly formulated intuition that God's love still could win out after death. That intuition is correct. (laughs) It's correct in every one of our lives, because I've been in a lot of deathbeds. And very few people die perfect. Do you understand? They're still a little grumpy the day before they die. (laughs) They haven't forgiven their wife totally or whatever it might be. You know, if we expect people to die perfect, we're going to be disappointed at most deathbeds. We all carry our wounds, our woundedness with us to the grave. So that's all the Catholic, it was really folk Catholicism. That created the doctrine of purgatory. But do you see what it was? It was holding out for mercy. Mm. It was trusting that mercy would finally win. That God was finally in charge. We made it so literal and burning in the fires of purgatory, it became sort of silly. But if you crawl underneath almost all doctrines, the initial intuition is correct. It just gets literalized, cheapened, trivialized, you see. So uh, I think the mystics are the ones who always believe that, that love will win. Yeah. That love is the... F- Be, why do we believe that? Because of the pledge, the promise, the guarantee in the body of Jesus. That the resurrection is our promise that this is the final chapter of history. Resurrection and ascension. You know, a re- the return.
1: Yeah. Now I would say that in recent years... And I can only speak to my experience and in my local context. But I, I would say that there's been so much more of an emphasis on resurrection oh, good, uh, good. in these parts. And some of them are reading of N.T. Wright. It just, he continues oh, to love the ascension. Sure, sure. Um,
0: oh, does he make a lot of the ascension? Yes, he does. Oh, it's, oh, uh, oh, yeah, okay. he's, he's
1: the more and more I read of N.T. Wright, the more I find his, his need for the ascension. Almost like we skip over it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Luther said that. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. so... You know, you've said something interesting. It's just beautiful. I love the resurrection. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd,
0: I'd be a very cynical man seeing what's happened to history if I could not believe in the resurrection. Mm. I have to fight the voices of cynicism every
1: day. You know? Do you really?
0: I do. Well, that's a one thing. Okay. See, we, the, the other side of perfectionism is you can never achieve it. And so when you don't achieve it, you're tempted I hope I don't fall into it, Yeah, but I live on the edge of it. Let's bring yeah. our
1: audience into that conversation. You and I have been talking quite a bit about the Enneagram. Uh, how would you spell Enneagram for people who've never heard of it? E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M.
0: Ennea is the Greek word for nine. And it goes back to something we think begins with one of the desert fathers, a strangely named father of the church called Evagrius Ponticus. Unless he studied... Patristics, You most people have never (laughs) heard of him. He was a Syrian deacon who died in 399. And he said there were eight enemies to prayer. Mm. Uh, He missed one. It was fear, which is the most common of all. Very interesting. Uh, Those later became the capital sins, seven of them. Uh, And we don't know the entire train of understanding but it reappeared then, you know, just in the last century as a wonderful tool to use on retreats to help people to face their capital sin. And what I mean by your capital sin is is your personal blind spot. (laughs) And ironically, the very thing that you're most blind to in yourself is your greatest gift and your worst fault. Mm. And you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Like my perfectionism is my, oh, I hate it. It's my worst fault. But in fact, it's what kept me searching for how to teach the gospel better, how to how to understand things better. How... I'm sure I wouldn't have written any of my books if I hadn't have been a one. Right, right. Each one is searching to explain this aspect better. And yet that very instinct toward perfectionism in my own life can make me make rash judgments about people. I hate it. Okay. Make Be very hard on myself. People who are hard on others are, first of all, hard on themselves. I demand an awful lot of myself. <clears throat> but because I work so hard and am on time and a good little soldier, I wonder why everybody else isn't. Yeah. But here's what the Enneagram did for me. It told me there's at least eight other significant, personality types, that aren't perfectionists. They don't look at it that way. They never will, and they don't need to. I can promise you, I learned it in 1973. What is this, 40 years later? What is yeah. 50 yeah. years later? I know I'm a much more loving man because of the Enneagram. Because yeah. it helped me empathetically recognize my own sin and forgive it. But then grant the same for twos and threes and fours and Beautiful. fives and sixes and sevens who will never be like me and don't need to be like me. Oh, it just, it, 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 I'm, forgiveness comes so much easier to me. I can forgive almost anything now. Cause almost because of the anagram, I see the trap that person is in. Wow. And how it leads you down to a dead end. Uh, and I just wish I could help him out of it. Wow
1: we would say Christ-likeness would only be found in relationship. And I would, say, I would say that what you've said about forgiveness, oh. of all the books I've read of yours, oh. a theme that's in everyone is forgiveness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about forgiveness for a little bit?
0: Well, let me put it this way. that what The fundamental forgiveness is not just for this person who offended you or that person who let you down. But it's a foundational forgiveness toward reality, toward the whole thing, for being absurd, for being tragic, for being violent, for being deceitful. I mean, uh, let's use a contemporary example. I think it's the cover of Time recently. We've become a culture of deceit. Uh, the death of truth—we're calling it. a post-truth society—and that's true of liberals and conservatives. I'm not taking political sides here, but um, and and if I don't if I don't have that foundational open-heartedness toward the absurdity of the human situation, I don't know how I can approach God's wholeheartedness, mm. because God is letting this world continue. I call him in one of my books, which is The Great Allower. Is that yeah, uh, Mortal Diamond or which yeah. one? The big G, big A. The Great Allower. God is daily allowing absurdity. Right. And I, I'm not that patient <laughs> until I plug into God and I say, Okay, Jesus, if you can... Uh, did you see the movie The Shack or read the book? Um, I read the book, but I haven't yes, seen the movie no. yet. Yeah, it'll become very real in the movie. And I know William Paul Young personally. I'll be with him in two weeks at our Trinity Conference. But, you know, the story he creates there of a father, and you could understand that, having to forgive someone who viciously murdered his own daughter. Ooh. Mm. But I know Paul Young personally. He's one of the happiest, freest, most loving, I think he's a two on the ending. <laughs> <laughs> he's a loving, loving man. But he had to fight for that. You understand? Because yeah. he went through some, you'll see it in the movie, some of the people he had to forgive. Uh, forgiveness, you have to suffer some unjust suffering and let go of it. Uh, unjust suffering is part of the deal. Mm. And all suffering is unjust mm. in the end. You know. Understand? I didn't deserve this. And that's why the cross is our great logo of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Reality doesn't know what it's doing. See, the reason we Franciscans, I'm introducing something new and saying this, but I'm going to say it. We never believed in the substitutionary atonement theory from the 13th century. Because what it was doing, the cross was saying God was violent. He demanded a violent act to love us. We just said that couldn't be. We saw the cross as a message about humanity is violent. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Jesus on the cross is his total forgiveness and identification with what the violence of humanity does to people. He hangs there, a victim of humanity's violence, not God's violence. Yes. Oh, it's just, it was abhorrent to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but unfortunately when the Reformation came along, you accepted without knowing it, the mainline Catholic positions. And the mainline Catholic position was, we didn't call it substitutionary atonement. We just said Jesus died for our sins. Mm -hmm. You know, but then uh, many Protestant traditions got really invested in this. And to tie this up with, what you were asking me before about transformation it made the whole spiritual journey transactional not transformational you understand? you do once you hear that very few people they get it this whole journey can't be transactional right and we Catholics made the sacraments transactional so we made the same mistake it's just what an immature mind does but when we did it With redemption itself, made the redemption of the world a transaction between Jesus and his father so he could thank Jesus for doing it instead of recognizing he was saying, you've got to do this too. Mm. This is the journey. (laughs) Yes. Vulnerable love. Yeah. Vulnerable. This is the journey for all of us. We got ourselves off the hook by thanking Jesus a little too much. Mm. Do you follow me? Yeah. Yeah. So we never we were called an alternative orthodoxy okay. inside the Catholic Church. We um, we weren't heretics, although some have called Franciscans the first Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: didn't know that. That's cause,
0: oh yeah, because <laughs> we lived on the edge of the inside of. But in the 13th century, it, we were the only game in town. You were Catholic, or in the West at least, or you weren't Christian. Yeah. So you couldn't leave the Catholic Church, that was unthinkable. So you had to find ways to, to offer incense to the powers that be, the papacy and the bishops, but we learned how to do it very differently. And that was true of the, the Benedictines, the Carmelites, each in our own way. We learned how to do it a little differently. You mm-hmm. see, yeah. That was our form of Protestant Reformation to basically follow the main doctrines and dogmas but to understand them in our own way which is and you just took that full force as you had to do by the 16th century because the monolith of the church had become so corrupt whenever you have a monopoly, whenever you have all the power whenever one religious or one political party has all forms of the government, you're just ready for corruption. Yeah, Because human beings can't handle that much power. They'll always abuse it. And we Catholics abused it.
1: Yeah,
0: And that's why we needed you. And still need you. <laughs>
1: well, it resonated with me so much. Uh, I would say in recent years, especially those many people listening on the podcast, that there would be pretty much a, a wholesale disgust of substitutionary atonement. Oh, is that true? Uh, in oh, our good. paths here as Nazarenes. Oh, it's just across the board. And it's it has really been, for the American church and evangelicalism, it's really become the symbol of how people understand atonement. And, and it's, it's not all circles, and we've talked a little bit no, about how, no. how large the Nazarene church tent is. There'll be people who are listening to this who don't agree with anything you I say. Who think we're heretics, <laughs> yes, yeah. But in so many ways, as far as um, many of our educators right now, the idea that um, the cross is not a symbol of how much... God hates Jesus, (laughs) which seems silly to me now. But the symbol of of how far love goes to make love's point. Um, Beautiful, beautiful. That's a line from my pastor, John Uh, Middendorf, who we've been with. But he says that time and again. But so many people have a hard time um, moving beyond that idea of substitutionary atonement. Um, I think in some ways it's because we're not convinced of God's love for us. That's what it comes down to. You would not need that if
0: you had experienced unearned, unmerited, unconditional love, which is God's love. Yes. That's, that's the definition of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm... No, We're facing this in a lot of churches now. We were never as invested in it because we had this 12th, 13th century debate where we had a majority position and a minority position. We were both allowed to remain Catholic But it left us less tied to it, do you see? You accepted the majority position of the Catholic Church, most mainline Protestants did. Now
1: you're recognizing along with us, it just doesn't work. (laughs) You you started this whole conversation about how every generation or so there needs to be a remaking. I think you said that about the Franciscans. Sure, sure. In so many ways, it's interesting for many of us to say, where are we now and where will we be? Where will uh-huh. God go? There's that teeter totter well, we effect. On. Yeah, yes. exactly. Beautiful. Um, well you're gonna hand on something very good, I think. <laughs> well, you've <laughs> handed on so much good stuff to us. I, I can't I can't end before us talking a little bit about okay. you've done an entire podcast without talking about dualism and non-dualism. Can you believe it? Can you believe you've not said those two words? (laughs) It
0: it sounds so boring. (laughs) I hate to to end on that. But it's essential to open up the mind and the heart space. As long as you remain in the dualistic paradigm of either or. You know, I don't know if you've ever worked with addicts, but people who've worked for many years in 12-step programs, they say what always characterizes an addict is all or nothing thinking. If it isn't perfect, it's terrible. If she's not totally right, she's absolutely wrong. That's what they call stinking thinking. You know? <laughs> but we, we don't realize we're all victims of it. Dualism is to m- divide the field into two and choose one side and think that makes you smart.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, we just went through the depths of this in America mm-hmm. for the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. People thinking they're smart. I'm not taking sides, because that would be dualistic. Well, one but, of the things no. I've loved
1: about you is you are equally as critical In of all, conservatives yeah. as you are liberals. Oh, yeah, You're yeah. equally critical of liberals as you are conservatives. Yeah, yeah. You, want, you have to be, because it's true.
0: <laughs> 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 there I am. There's my one perfectionism. Again. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, uh, we tore this country apart, over-identifying with either Republican or Democrat. What a waste of time. You know, where both sides should have had calm people saying, well, on this point, we, we're good, but we got our blind spots over here as Republicans. On this side, we Democrats are making some very good points, but we've got a few blind spots. See, to hang on the cross is to have no place to lay your head. It really is. It's two nailed hands of seeing the truth on both, and you hold it until it changes you. That's what Jesus did, and that's the resurrection. Not, but we refuse to hold any creative tensions. We've just I've got to be a bona fide Republican. Oh God. What does that mean anymore? It has nothing to do with the gospel or Democrat, right? It's, it's, but that's because the mind is a binary system, it likes to operate that way. divide, divide the field into two, not just take sides, But choose sides and identify. Wrap my ego around one side so that I can see none of the shadow side of the Democratic or the Republican Party and project all of my shadow, those evil people. I mean, the language this last year was the language of evil. (laughs) The other party is evil, and we're absolutely angelic. And that's just talk about stinking thinking. Yeah. <laughs> a third graders should know more than that. And we got people with PhDs yeah. and people who call themselves Christians yeah. who aren't any better than that in their thinking. We need a new epistemology. And we speak in the school of a contemplative epistemology. As you know, epistemology is your How science you know what you of know knowing. What say. Yeah. Your science of knowing. And our science of knowing isn't Christian anymore. It's not contemplative.
1: Yeah.
0: It's entirely dualistic. Yeah. If it isn't 100% pr- that I can prove that it's right, that means it's 100% wrong.
1: See, I don't think that's born at all. It's not born at all. Oh, See, yeah, that yeah. non-duals thinking, moving out of that binary mind, yes. I, I think you've said many times, it's, that's the contemplative heart. Yeah. Um, opening up a space for prayer mm. in ways in which we can be together with God and be present. I mean, it just seems those themes continue to come up. You mentioned shadow work. Man, I want to ask you about that. When you say shadow (laughs) self. You want to ask me about everything. (laughs) Go ahead. When you say shadow self. Yes. Can you you just dig
0: into that? First of all, I don't mean the evil self, which is what people think. I mean the denied and rejected self. Mm. That's different than the evil self, all right? Mm -hmm. It's just what you're ashamed of, what you don't want people to see, because it carries such shame for you. Yeah. Let's use the the common thing in America, because we're so concerned with appearance of overweight. I don't know a, hardly a, a single overweight person that I've ever been spiritually directed, director for, who that's not shadow material. Yeah. They will tear up. They will, they will try to change the subject. They will breathe heavy. They will get angry when you talk about weight it is something that carries so much shame for them especially people who are already let's say a chubby little girl or a chubby little boy you know this has nothing to do with moral evil per se at all yeah. it's cultural yeah. your shadow is largely t- determined by your early early upbringing by frankly your culture and your religion yeah. it's most often, not always most often tied with body issues, because our body carries our, our sense of inferiority, yeah. our sense of being not good enough. And that's why I think we we always overemphasize sexual sins, yeah. where Jesus doesn't. Yeah. Jesus doesn't. Pride and arrogance and, and ambition, which are sins of the Spirit, are the ones Jesus is concerned about but because we're so still enmeshed with our shadow self. We know if you want to shame somebody, convict them of body sin. Addiction, sex, eating. Look at bulimia, anorexia, obesity are overtaking our country, it seems like, because we carry our shame in our body. We carry our shadow self, most of all, in our body.
1: So how do you do that shadow work? I think that's how you. one of the things you call well, it. Well, you need a mirror
0: in your life. I think that's why most of us are called a marriage. You need a truth speaker who you know absolutely accepts you and accepts you so much that they can hold up the mirror. Honey, what you just did, is it really painful to me? Do you realize what you're doing? And you don't. <laughs> what, and they're the only ones, usually good friends, long-lasting friends, partners who are given permission. You better give them permission. If If she or he doesn't show you your shadow, no one else will. Now, we also know, and I know you're a father, your children do that without realizing it. Yeah, yes, <laughs> just because they demand so much of you and needs, you constantly see, I do not know how to love, I'm still a selfish person. <laughs> just expose me, they yes, just yes. expose me. <laughs> Every father tells you that their kids expose them for uh, all their little personality flaws, all their little addictions, and I like this time to be quiet, you know, <laughs> and kids could care less about that, as you well know. So... And, of course, to let us know that this is not a Jungian psychological 20th century discovery, we all know Jesus' parable about the log in your own eye and the speck in someone else's eye. That is classic, perfect shadow teaching. What you cannot see in yourself, even though it's a log, uh, you will see even a slight indication of it in your neighbor and hate it over there. This is what Carl Jung did clarify. He said, with absolute certitude, what you cannot accept in yourself, you'll project onto another person and hate it over there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I'll give you a silly example. One of my one compulsions, well, we were joking. I, I was trained to always be on time by my family, my German family. We're not just on time. We're five minutes early in my family. And the Franciscans, we lived in a formation by a bell, and you were there on time. Uh, I mean, I would never make fun of someone or criticize someone. But I have to admit, people who come 10 minutes late irritate me. I don't understand that. Yeah, I lose respect for them. I, I mean, it's that terrible.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Especially if you're consistent. You're always 15 minutes late. All it takes is look at your watch. <laughs> to me, it's the easiest thing in the world to be on time. But that is not a value for them. So I can understand it intellectually. But because of my years of shadow material, of being feeling shame about ever being late for anything, when I see someone late in my deepest mind, I still feel a little pity for them <laughs> <laughs> you are an undisciplined selfish person because that's what my mother told me you know uh, you understand yeah your early voices from your mom and your dad and your church God figures they largely
1: create the shadow self yeah you've been a spiritual director for I don't know how many years mm-hmm. trained in that yeah. would you also say that a young pastor uh, listening to this podcast who may not be married or may not have the relationship of vulnerability with a spouse to look at themselves or may not have kids would you say a spiritual director can also hold up that mirror
0: oh yeah that's what he's for or she's for yeah now we don't have enough of them to go around as you know no yeah. there's wonderful uh formation centers emerging all over the country tr- catholic and protestant training good spiritual directors but that's what they're for. That's what in our older world, what a confessor was to be—not right. to shame the person, not—but to turn around their sin and make it into mercy, and make it into an experience of grace. Uh, yeah, that's what a good spiritual director—he's not there, she's not there, to make you feel good about yourself. But that doesn't mean he tears you down. But he does gently hold up the mirror. Richard, did you, did you hear what you just said there? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. oh, God, what did I just say? Yeah, we, Let's just look at that for a little bit. You know, you don't yeah. say it in a judgmental way. Let's just look at that for a little bit, what you just said. Why do you think you needed to say that? Mm. It came from a deep hurt place, usually, inside of you. Mm-hmm. Those things that come out, we call them Freudian slips now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: One of the things you've said a few times is the ability for someone who, I guess that terminology we would say is looking more like Christ. Yes. Um, ability to know and understand your shadow self. Yes. In their life and activity, they can some way, in some way stand outside of their selves and see what activities are happening within them. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: I love what you said. Um, you have to detach enough from yourself. I call
0: it to stand on a viewing platform. You're going to create your own viewing platform where you can witness. uh, We learned that word from the Buddhists, although it's in Romans 8.16, I think, where Paul says, let your witness bear common witness with the witness. Now, he's clearly, if you read that Romans 8, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Your witness, your soul, joins with the Holy Spirit and allows you to look at yourself in a non-judgmental but objective way. Mm. Almost as if, I'm not Richard, I'm watching Richard. Mm -hmm. If you're not capable of such detachment from your own self, I could say categorically, you're too attached to yourself. Most people are far too attached to themselves, because they've never created that viewing platform, whereby they can stand back, not in a shaming way, not in a guilt-laden way, but just calmly say, Richard, you could have been a little nicer to that lady. Why did why did, you let her bother you? Uh, and then you think about it. Well, she reminds me of, or whatever it might be. There's always a reason. It's not we're malicious. We're just fragile. Yeah. Human beings are very fragile. And we grab at straws for identity and... Importance and all these things. They never work, but we <laughs> we keep grabbing.
1: Well, as you know. we come to a close, um love to have you say some some final words, maybe some encouraging words to some young pastors who may be mm. listening to this in our particular tribe. And I just would love to hear and maybe a blessing upon us even, uh, Richard. We'd love <laughs> well, to you're a we'd blessing love to hear some me. final closing words.
0: Uh, I do know how hard it is to be a minister in a culture this materialistic this superficial this secular you you feel often like uh, you know blowing in the wind. you are blowing in the wind or a prophet shouting in the desert you know it's uh, even our best messages are very often heard at such a superficial level and after a while you do think well maybe I'm kidding myself maybe all these people are are right so I, I think unless you go deep yourself, where God becomes absolutely real for you, more real, as Augustine says, than you are to yourself, I can see why a lot of ministers give up. They just they wander away. If you take on that superficial secular mind, mm-hmm. where it's just the material world. Martin Kelsey said years ago, the basic problem is, most Christians do not believe in the reality of the spiritual world. Mm. It's not real for them. Mm. I think that's true. Mm. So I, I would just say to these young clergy, I know they're caught up in building their family and developing their career, but you better find a place to go deep. Some quiet time, some apart time, some prayer time where you, you, you knock upon the real. Mm. Uh, without that, You'll become a cynic, or you'll leave yeah. by middle age. Yeah, yeah. Thank I you. hope that helps. No, sure. that's beautiful. Sure. Thank you so yeah. much. You're welcome. Thank
1: you for your life, your writings, your voice. Uh, we yeah. are grateful for the gift you are to the kingdom of God. Uh, grateful for the gift you are to the Catholics and the Franciscans, mm-hmm. but your voice is is permeating the oh. Church of God. And including kind. our little tribe is Nazarene, oh. so we love you. Thank you.
0: Well, I love you. The ones I've met these two days, marvelous people. You're doing something right. And, you know, it's easier to do something right in a smaller church. Uh, it's hard to be Catholic. We're just so huge. <laughs> we got to take the blame for all of history, you know. Uh, you only got to take a little bit of blame. So that's, good. that's great. <laughs> God bless you
1: all. Thank you. Thank, thank you. thank you, Richard. We appreciate it. Thank you.